Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking the economy this week, international students, China, and the so-called end of the 50% participation target. Again, but don't underestimate how much time and effort is going into looking at how do you do social distance teaching, how do you do social distance student support, social activities. Universities will be offering a whole range of in-person activity, far far beyond uh, just some of the, the teaching. And, and so, yes, it'll be a different experience. But actually, if you compare it to the rest of people's lives and what people will be doing otherwise. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to help inject a bit of policy stimulus into this faltering economy, I have three amazing guests as ever. In London, we have Jess Drink, Policy and Public Affairs Manager at Middlesex University, where I should also say I'm proud to be a governor. Jess, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I think my highlight has to be catching up with friends again um, at the weekend and watching our kids have a big water fight in the garden. Also in London, and only streets away from Wonky's Lockdown HQ, in fact, we have Alistair Jarvis, Chief Exec of Universities UK. Alistair, your highlight of the week. Now that Jess has gone for a, for a personal one, mine's going to sound very sad, but I, I thought the immigration reforms we've seen for international students over the, the last week or so, and, and the fact that government's committed to, to further reforms with the new, new office for talent is, is going to be really good for, for universities. But I now wish I'd gone for a, a personal one. <laughs> Always on message. And from Team Wonky, it's our very own editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Alistair's lead. Um, my highlight of this week has been our Black Lives Matter event, which we had yesterday. And despite some initial technical issues with getting the uh, enormous number of people who expressed interest uh, to, to, to be able to get on, onto the Zoom call, um, it was inspirational, it was challenging, um, and I really, really hope it's going to lead to some uh, really significant change. It was spectacular, and you can watch it back. Uh, you can watch the whole event back on uh, on on a uh, YouTube, which we put on wonky.com. Right, let's start with the economy. Uh, the Chancellor got to his feet yesterday in Parliament and set out a bunch of measures around um, skills and training and getting the country moving again. Universities didn't get a huge amount of mention, but lots of uh, lots of measures, possibly with an indirect uh, link to to the sector. Alistair, talk us through this. Th- thanks, thanks, Mark. Um, so, I mean, it's it's very clear that this, the government is is focused um, primarily on the economy at the moment. They're they're very worried about. Um, what the economy, the state of the economy um, with, with with COVID nineteen and and what the economic recovery looks like, um, although this isn't all completely completely new. If you go back to the twenty nineteen Conservative manifesto, uh, the, the the December general election manifesto, uh, there is lots in that about uh, focusing on skills, focusing on. Uh, particularly vocational routes, um, the weakness of vocational education routes and the need to improve that, the focus on level threes, four, five. Um, so I think we're starting to see now um, the government actually pushing forward the policy agenda that they've wanted to progress for a while that was sort of paused, slowed down because of COVID-19. And if anything, they're, they're saying that this is even more important now, given the need to drive the economic recovery 
Um, so, so I think that's that, that's sort of where we are, and that was why we saw a strong focus on on skills. And I think very much li- linked to that is jobs. So the reason they that they want to see a focus on skills and more people developing their skills is a because they think businesses need it, and b because they um, want people to get jobs. For me, the, the the one of the positive things in the announcements this week were around apprenticeships. So it was really great to see um, new payments to employers for each new apprenticeship they hire, both under 25 and over 25-year-olds. Um, really great to see that there's no distinction being made there between the levels of apprenticeship. Um, I think what for me is really important is, is that all levels of apprenticeships are being enabled to play their full role in the recovery for the pan- from the pandemic because I think apprenticeships have got a really critical role to play there um, in terms of social mobility or dare I say it, levelling up. We're certainly seeing that in the higher and degree apprenticeships at Middlesex where we have really high numbers of mature learners and um, apprentices from BAME groups coming through. So great to see that this week and it would be good to see more really so that that apprenticeships can play their full role um, in the government's agendas. So I, I completely agree with with Jess, and I think that um, there's there's loads of potential to continue to grow apprenticeships all different levels. I think there's there's a huge demand from employers, particularly for degree apprenticeships, uh, and huge demand from uh, people to do them. Um, but I'm really worried about whether the money's there. Um, I mean, we've gone for a, a, a time when the apprenticeship levy pot seemed to be very full, and the government was driving an increase to a time when they're running out of money. There, there isn't the money for apprenticeships that there used to be, and and I think we we're, we're going to see um, demand outstrips of apply um, because there isn't enough enough money to fund them and that's that's really worrying um, and I think the government needs to to act to make sure that um, they can support those people wanting to go go and do apprenticeships and and I said particularly the very popular degree apprenticeships it, it doesn't seem clear where they want people to do apprenticeships so does it I mean they're, they're talking a lot about investing in uh, le- level three four and five but um, further education colleges are in you know much 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 worse trouble than universities are financially um, and uh, they they don't seem to they don't seem to appreciate that a lot of this stuff can actually happen inside higher education in some in some form. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I mean, I I, I, um, I strongly believe that there is still a strong economic case to to get more people to university, expand the number of people studying at higher levels, uh, and that the economy benefits from that and individuals benefit from that. But it doesn't actually mean they necessarily do the same things as they're doing now. And I think um, you know, if we're going to see a growth in 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 people setting at high levels that should be through uh, courses in partnership with business, uh, degree apprenticeships, uh, part-time, mature people retraining, reskilling, all the kind of things that are really going to help the economy. Um, but and, and universities can do this stuff and the universities are doing this and can can expand this further. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, shrinking universities or, or um, restricting that is not the way to, to do it. Yeah, Debbie, it doesn't seem like universities are central to that narrative, despite clearly being important players. Yes, and I I, th- I I think that's fair. But then I also think that it's good policy not to kind of decide out of the gate, you know, exactly how you're going to deliver on your target. So I think you know I think there's there's probably an onus here on universities to step up to the plate and to demonstrate kind of how they're how they're going to deliver um, and how they're going to kind of support support those aims in in kind of skilling up and increasing the numbers of people doing those apprenticeships. Um, I think perhaps a missing a missing group uh, that that wasn't wasn't mentioned yesterday is is graduates, and and I think we've 
we st we should still be a bit concerned about graduate jobs and about graduate employability this year. Um, certainly, we know that, th that there may be employers who are reducing the number of uh, graduates that they take on. It will, and it will certainly be difficult for graduates to find uh, bridging work as, as as they look for their uh, their long term um, career choices. So, but I think the other thing to say is is that anyone who's kind of thinking that universities haven't got a look in um, in this in this summer summer statement. So, I mean, so so it, you know, there is absolutely universities are absolutely central to to you know to the to the economic growth. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's particularly focused on science. And I think there's a kind of there's, there's absolutely space to play in across the rest of it as well. Yeah, abs absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I think there's, there's there's lots of things incorrectly written about how universities haven't had support through through COVID nineteen from government, and, and they have. I mean, you, you look at quite a lot of uh, measures to boost international competitiveness through immigration reform. You look at this 2.4 billion package of support for research and, and innovation, um, a mixture of grants grants and loans. There's clearly, there's clearly a, a government view that despite maybe not promoting a growth in universities and looking at strengthening some, some other weaker areas of, of education, um, they absolutely don't want universities to fail. Um, and you know there are a number of interventions in place to make sure that universities are not severely damaged because of COVID-19. And I think actually that goes back to the earlier point that somebody made about the kind of place focus. And that as much as this government, uh, universities may not be flavour of the month of this government, and they may not be um, promoting them, supporting them the same as you're, you're hearing them talk about some other areas like um, like the NHS and, and other areas. Um, they also completely understand that if you want to have successful towns and cities and you want to have wealth and you want to support those communities, universities are, are really crucial. So I think although they may not be actively promoting and trying to grow them, I think also they're very wary of damaging universities because they're so crucial to their, their local place. Yeah, just on that, on the role of universities and their places, I think it, it just makes me think again in, in the context of the debates this week and last about how important it is that um, universities are engaging uh, the people in their constituencies, the people in their local area in what they do. And it's a point that we've heard Rachel Wolf, who wrote the Tory manifesto and Matt Chorley from the Times make frequently that we really need people to care about their local university and see the tangible impact that it has on them and their families' lives so that universities rise up the political agenda and that we're seeing universities become more important in, in, in policy making and, and, and the resource that government is committing to the sector. The other thing I'd add is that I think it's really important that the government is harnessing the whole sector's contribution um, in recovery from the pandemic. So I think what we're seeing um, which is quite worrying for some of the less affluent parts of the sector at the moment is that the various support packages around student number controls, around um, research and the government's roadmap for research ongoing um, are um, very focused on the quote unquote best universities, um, the more affluent parts of the sector. And I think if we're going to get through this pandemic, we really need to make sure that the whole sector is um, being supported and being um, enabled and harnessed to, to get us through this. And more importantly, the students in, in um, the less affluent parts of the sector are being enabled to play their part in the recovery because those students have the skills and the resilience that the country needs to get through this. And I think the fact that some parts of the sector are being um, excluded or not supported as much as they might be it, it is very disappointing in that regard. Yeah, I mean, my, my, yeah, I, I, and I agree with Jess that we've got to got to make sure that the support reaches all those universities that, that need it, and, and that needs to be the diversity of the sector. Um, I mean, part of that is, is is looking at where the the greatest losses are and therefore the greatest damages, and making sure that the support 
protects those those areas those the crucial work that all universities are doing in different ways and and um and so of course the impact of of covid-19 on university finances is not evenly felt across the sector and therefore the support package is not going to be even and and that's that's fair enough but it certainly shouldn't um support one kind of university or one sort of mission over another i mean i just wanted to pick up on the point about um uh universities kind of civic local contribution i mean i i highly agree and i was part of the civic university commission that i think um Universities need to redouble their efforts. Really have strong impact on their local communities, and uh, and I mean for me for me it's sort of saying that you know there's the the classic kind of well universities do um, do teaching um, and the education side and they do research and innovation, um, but for me it's absolutely the, the third bit which is their their, their civic impact, um, how they support local businesses, how they work with local schools, how they provide services and support local communities. For me, I think that should be in every university's um, list of sort of three priorities. You know, if it's education, if it's research and innovation, then the, the third bit should absolutely be that civic impact. And, and I think if we're going to continue to enjoy public support and continue to have people who want to go to university and work with universities, that that civic side of what they do is just crucial. And, and Debbie, it seems even more important now, doesn't it? Because the uh, many university towns are, are facing a kind of double whammy economic effect without they haven't had students students in the towns uh, supporting the economy um, and then and, and often universities are the, the largest employer so um, does it give us more impetus for the for that for that agenda yes our, our friends at tortoise modeled this didn't they and, and and they find that university towns are are uh, struggling particularly, although I imagine you know coastal towns and and, and other sort of more deprived areas are are, are struggling too. Um, yes, I think in short, it's probably <laughs> fair to say that um, I, I think I think I think you know as as we emerge from coronavirus, and of course nobody knows how long that will take and, and what the process will be and, and and when when people will feel safe. You know there will be a moment to uh, look again. You know if people, if universities have been developing civic agreements or if they've been um, working on on developing those to kind of look again and, and re reassess where the needs where the p- patterns of need have shifted um, and then re- recalibrate activity accordingly um, and I guess come to a sort of new new compact uh, with, with their communities and um, re- you know, really focused on, on moving us all on from, from this un- unpleasant state that we find ourselves in. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name is Paula Sussex and I'm the Chief Executive of the Student Loans Company. I've written about what SLC has been doing to deliver reliable and timely finance to students and providers during the COVID-19 pandemic. In short, we've had to ensure that we can process 2 million applications and pay some 20 billion to students and the sector, all the while with our staff working remotely. We've had to grapple with the uncertainty of applicant behaviour and we've had to adapt to meet the needs of the sector through the reprofiling of tuition fee payments. This will undoubtedly continue to be a challenging year and we remain cautious, but also optimistic. Right now, with application volumes on a par with last year, it does feel like SLC has the stable foundation to continue to deliver, even in the face of a significant national emergency. And the whole team here at SLC are determined to do just that. Okay, lots of interesting stuff happening uh, around international students this week. We've had a report from UCISA, um, big changes in the US, and, and HEPI's enter the debate about UK universities and its relationship with China. Jess, what's jumping out for you here? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So as you said, a really interesting report from USISA around making the UK more attractive or the most attractive global destination for international students. So they're calling for changes to the visa system to prioritise international student visa applications and an extension, interestingly, of the transition period for students from the European Economic Area. 
Um, I think the theme around international students' experience jumped out at me with this report and the HEPI report on China, which I'll come to shortly. Um, so USISA are calling for the development of a, a charter, an international students' charter, which celebrates best practice um, on supporting international students in the sector. And also just how important it is that there's a really clear and consistent message of welcome from the UK government to international students so really recognising their positive contribution to society and the economy here. And so moving on to this new collection of essays on UK universities and China from HEPI, um, it covers a range of topics, UK-China scientific research, for example, um, and again, quite a big focus on student experience for Chinese students. And I was interested to read about the sense among Chinese students that it's really difficult for them to engage with UK students when they're at universities in the UK and also to meet other international students. So there's an interesting challenge for the sector there. And also there were some interesting thoughts around the tendency to make assumptions about Chinese students in UK universities that, that we're perhaps perhaps falling back on stereotypes around how Chinese students learn um, and a bit of a challenge to the sector to, to look in a, a more subtle way at the experiences and backgrounds and the diversity of students from China and not just as a, a single entity. And then finally, as you said, Mark, we've got the news from the States um, that Harvard and MIT are suing Trump um, for stripping foreign students of their visas um, if uh, classes move online in, in, in during the, the pandemic. Um, so lo lots to digest there. And as, as I said, I think for me, that message around international students and how we can ensure that we're, that we're meeting their needs and, and more importantly, getting them involved in the university beyond just the group that they arrive with um, at Middlesex, interestingly, we've we've actually got an international student as our incoming students' union president at the moment. So I think there's something around how can we get those students engaged in the student voice in our universities and make sure that they're they're really embedded in the infrastructure of the university. Well, there's lots there. We'll start with the US, Alistair. I mean, it seems like the uh, Trump administration is, is having a terrible pandemic and has really blown it on international students, which should be good for the UK's ability to 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 pick up some that, that might have otherwise gone um would you um uh, but but you know you've you've had strong words for the UK government and its handling of international student visas over the past um how far away would we be from um you know Oxford and Cambridge joining a, a lawsuit against the UK government to stop its ridiculous uh, higher education Immigration well, I, I mean, first, I'm delighted to say that that um, this is one of the areas where I think we're working kind of with, with government and and a lot of the views of the sector on on how the immigration regime should change to better support international students is happening. So there's there's significant visa liberalisation. There's a commitment to reform the visa regime further. We set out principles last year about how that should happen, and the new office for talent has basically picked them up and is is looking at how the new point based system can can be a lot faster, smoother, more efficient. Um, so actually, I, I, I really can only be supportive of the direction of travel of the, the government's immigration policy for international students at, at this time. And I think I think we're seeing actually, particularly through the pandemic, a lot more help and flexibility, post-study work visas and, and other things. So that's really good. And actually, it's, I mean, if you talk about the comparison to the, the US, I mean, what a amazing own goal for um, 
uh, for Trump and his administration, and, and I mean, how damaging for their universities to take the position they're taking. I mean, it's 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 incredible, really, isn't it? I mean, how would you? I mean, talk about self-inflicted damage. It's it you know it will be bad for those universities, bad for their economy, um, and I, I mean, I I, I um. You know, in solidarity with the universities in, in America, I hope that they they win their lawsuit. Um, but in terms of benefit for the from the UK higher education, clearly we we are opening and welcoming to international students. We can offer them a good experience, and and I would imagine a number of them won't wait to see the outcome of the lawsuit and will probably look elsewhere. So I think we may well benefit, but I don't, I don't want to sort of. Um, I mean, I would certainly welcome those students here, but I don't want to to, to sort of prey on the the US universities who I feel really quite sorry for and hope they they win their case mm-hmm. and and china why do you think this why do you think china's rising up the agenda so much politically now well chi- china is the great growing world power whether that's economically whether that's militarily indeed actually in in science and research and innovation and, and a lot of other areas as well so so it's kind of you know if you look at the the 50 years ahead our big um global strategic um, diplomatic challenges, economic challenges are all likely to have a, a strong link um, to China. And I think we're just seeing playing out a growing a growing power that's exerting its influence across the world and, and then therefore for causing challenges. And I think, you know, the UK and indeed the UK university sector is is trying to adapt to this as much as um, everybody else. And and I mean for me it's it's it, what we need to do is um, continue to have a, a positive relationship with China, continue to work with their universities and um, attract their students, work with them on research. But when you have a positive relationship with someone, you also should be open to challenge and criticize and disagree as well. So it's getting that balance between being supportive of China, working with China, but that doesn't mean not being critical when it's um it's fair to do so there's a particular problem though isn't there with this government because the, the china hawks are clearly winning the argument we've seen that over a number of things recently particularly um hong kong and and uh p- probable uh probable climb down on the huawei uh huawei front and, and asking huawei to to uh remove its infrastructure from from telecommunications are you worried that a version of this government could kind of one day turn around to universities and say Look, you're you know you're too reliant on recruiting Chinese students. We think that's now a kind of economic and political threat, um, and we're going to start putting measures in place to dial that down in, in a way that we expect them to start doing that in other parts of the economy, like like telecommunications. So I I, I doubt that this government would would try and you know block Chinese students from from coming to the UK, and I think they understand their uh, their economic importance, but also the fact that. Um, the relationships with international students is part of what will help us develop long-term good trading business diplomatic relationships with China. Indeed, the more Chinese students that have a experience in the UK, the more likely that relationship will be positive in the future. So I don't think the government is, is in the mood to sort of try and try and stop that. I think what they are trying to do, as exact as universities are, is to diversify the international student population more. And and, and I mean, my view is is yes, we are as a sector over reliant on. Um, uh, Chinese students. And that's not to say there's too many Chinese students. I think there just aren't enough from some other uh, uh, countries. And so we should be looking to the future as we grow our international student numbers, which is is looking like it will happen. I, this, this, this is obviously going to be a tough year with the pandemic, but I'm still confident that the UK's sort of offer is strong and we will grow international student numbers in the medium term, uh, particularly if we, we get the continued direction travel on visas. So I think we just need to make sure that as we grow the numbers, we start to get a a, a greater diversity in, in other countries. Um, so, so so we're not so, so, so reliant on Chinese students. But that shouldn't mean reducing the numbers. It should mean growing others. I think we're at quite an interesting sort of pivotal point in some ways in the international internationalization uh, university agenda, because the 
um, of course, you know, because of course we've got Brexit, um, we've got this sort of uh, urge towards figuring out what, what being a global Britain looks like. Um, and we've got coronavirus um, and we've got these kind of mounting tensions with China. And I think that speaks to me of a, a real opportunity, I think. I and mean, I think this came through in some of the happy essays as well about um, really understanding uh, the countries and cultures that st students are coming from and that universities are engaged with. And I think, you know, I think there's, you know, enormous depth of, of knowledge and, and insight within UK universities. And I think that there's maybe an opportunity to disseminate some of that um, more widely, you know, specifically because, you know, the global geopolitical settlement is, is much tenser these days than it was maybe a decade ago. Um, and, and there are kind of real challenges with how we, how, you know, what, what international engagement looks like. Um, and to kind of bring some of that insight to bear and to apply it, you know, from, from you know, from, from sort of that deep academic knowledge to apply it not only to university internationalisation activities and choices and strategies, but also to the kind of to the public discourse. I think can only can only kind of can only benefit uh, how the UK moves forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and um, and I mean, you know, if you look at our our future diplomatic influence um, around the world and our our economic and trading links and, and other things, the better understanding we have of other countries and, and cultures, the the better. And yes, I think we are. I, I mean, I think. You know, how, how do we make Britain truly global following Brexit? Well, it is building that better understanding, surely, of other countries and cultures. So I, I agree. And I mean, that's the great thing about universities, because that's that's kind of our bread and butter. That's what we do. That's that's why it's so important that we have international universities that that, that have those global links and have significant numbers of international students and staff. You know, on a positive um, note, on, on in this area, um, uh, we we are seeing. A significant growth in interested in Indian uh, students coming to the UK. So, I mean, if you look at where there is potential to to grow really big strategic partnerships with universities overseas, getting you know research partnerships, getting um, more in mobile international students. I think India is a, you know is, is clearly great potential, and the, uh, and we're seeing a growth there. Um, we, we've got a, a report coming out soon called um, "Why Aren't We Second? and it looks at um, where there are countries around the world where the UK isn't in the top two in terms of um, choices for their international students, and and why that is the case, what why we're not, and what we we can do about it. So that's very much an effort to to diversify uh, yeah. and grow grow numbers from from different countries. And that, that, I think that segmented approach is going to be really important. You know, I think we probably, where, where, where this is happening, we, we can't just be talking about, you know, international students as this kind of lumped together bunch of undifferentiated, you know, people. They're all coming from specific cultures and, and contexts. And I think if there is a challenge with engaging with UK students, that that's something that really needs to be looked at in terms of kind of developing intercultural competencies. And again, not as a generic thing, but a sort of a deep understanding of, of the specifics of, of other people's cultures. You know, we could all, we could all probably do with a bit more of that. Absolutely. I, 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 I really agree with that and I think it, it's just really important that we don't that we're not perceived as being self entirely self-serving um, in our international education strategy and that we're not just seeing those international students as, as cash cows um, that we develop that more subtle um, way of engaging with those students needs. T t entirely agree I mean, I mean I, I think surely a big part of the international education strategy has got to be the experience we're offering international students because because we've got to ultimately look at the fact, you know, what, why, why do international students want to come here? And that's because we're offering them something which is is of value to them. And if we don't focus on that, we're gonna gonna really suffer. So absolutely, the sort of frankly, the starting point's got to be how do you make it as good experience as possible, and and how do you understand the the differences? Mm. Right. This is this is a perfect time to bring in uh, to do yes, but does it correlate? Um, so uh, the because it's on an international theme. Welcome, bienvenue, willkommen, kreuzo, and a up 
to a special internationally focused edition of Yes, But Does It Correlate? The world-leading podcast segment in a good way. For OECD countries, I plotted the 2018 GDP per capita, which is indexed to 2010, against the calculated percentage of people under 25 who will enter a bachelor's level degree at some point during their lifetime. The question this week was suggested by Rachel Wolfe of Public First. Thank you, Rachel. So, is there a link between access to HE and GDP? Does it correlate? But yeah, I mean, it, does, it, does, it doesn't seem feasible that it doesn't correlate, does it? I would also say yes. The answer is no. There is no significant correlation between these measures. However, the graph itself is well worth a look. The UK, coloured in pale orange, is slightly above average on entry rates and pretty much on the median for GDP growth since 2010. Quite close to Germany. The only OECD countries with a lower entry rate and a larger positive change in GDP are Estonia and Turkey. Data is from the excellent OECD statistics resource, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Now, we've had the latest UCAS figures out this week. Debbie, talk us through them. Right. So, um, the latest data release for the 30th of June deadline from UCAS uh, uh, should give a reasonable amount of comfort to the sector, who obviously everyone's sort of poised, wondering what's going to happen in September. So, uh, four out of 10 18-year-olds had applied to a higher education course before the main deadline. Um, compared to last year, uh, starting from the 23rd of March, which is when the Prime Minister announced lockdown on the 30th of June, we've seen 17% more new applications. Um, so that seems really positive. Um, and there's been a particular increase in uh, nursing applications, particularly, which I think shows the kind of uh, the effect of the COVID-19 bump and the kind of heroic efforts of, of NHS staff in the front line. So there's clearly students have been um, inspired by, by that. And, and there's some really interesting analysis uh, from UCAS on the site today, which explores, you know, what's actually going on with some of these later, later, late applicants. And one of the things, so particularly among mature applicants, um, so you're talking about, you and people who've maybe got kids at home and um, who've maybe been put on furlough or who, you know, who feel like their jobs might be at risk, um, you know, have had actually, because of COVID-19, some time to think about what they want from life and what their opportunities are and, and what might be available to them. Um, and once, one of the things that they're doing is applying for higher education courses. So this is incredibly positive. Um, but of course, DK signs a note of... A note of um, uh, caution uh, on his uh, write-up of the numbers, which points out that, of course, we've still got quite a long way to go between now and September, um, and uh, and universities are working incredibly hard to to work out what that what that offer will look like. Yeah, I, I'd jump in there if if that's okay. I, I I thought this was really great to see. I think the story around health programmes certainly matches up with what we're seeing at Middlesex. Um, we're seeing a lot of interest in our health programmes, particularly nursing. Um, and it's great to see that I think all the inspirational stories um, from health workers, I mean, we've had 500 of our nurses on the front line during the pandemic. And I think those inspirational stories of the role health workers are playing and have played in the, in the, in the pandemic are really having an impact. Um, I'd say a word of caution around the expansion in places for health programmes are really welcome. Um, but we've seen that there are limits to how far that expansion can go because you need the placements to match with those programmes to be able to expand, um, uh, you know, consider substantially. Um, I think mature learners data is really interesting as well. I think, as you say, Debbie, um, it could well be that more blended style of learning is, is more appealing for mature learners as they juggle the pressures they may have in their in their personal lives. I mean, many of our students uh, have 
care commitments, they work part-time. If they were coming to campus, they'd have long and complex and expensive commutes. So it could be that this sort of enforced pilot of um, blended learning will play um, a, a big role in the new normal that, that we see after evolving after the pandemic. Mm. Alistair, go on. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's great news to see that you know, despite the, the the pandemic that I think you know a lot of people feared that it would it would um, see people turning away from university or, or, or concerned about what universities will be be offering the, in the autumn. But it's it's very clear that that people are voting with their feet and deciding to go to university, and they still see that as the as the route to a better life and and a better job and um, to fulfil their their ambitions. And and I mean, I, I, I think um, this is why you know government and others need to be careful about anything that. That, that effectively caps aspiration or or um or suggests to people that they shouldn't be going to university and I, i'm worried with some of the rhetoric you hear in this area because clearly the vast majority of people that go to university benefit significantly from that experience um you know whether that be jobs whether that be life opportunities whether that be their their family and people want to go to university um and the numbers are showing showing that so i think you know we we're seeing a growth this year and i expect to see continued growth and people want to go into university as a route to a sort of better life. Also, though, I would add, it, it, there's lots of positive here, but I think we need to be a little bit cautious in our optimism because we do need to see these applications converting to enrolment in the autumn. Um, and I think for mature learners, there's always a chance that applying for university is one of many um, sort of options they've that many irons in the fire that, that they've put in place so that, so that they can um, see how things stand in the autumn and I think also for disadvantaged learners what we see at Middlesex is just how important it is that we're working with those um, applicants through pre and things like pre-induction programs communicating with them regularly managing that tr- transition reassuring them helping them build networks so that they um that, that they do continue and, and enrol in the autumn. That's particularly important for disadvantaged learners and is going to be more important than ever in the current climate. And the final thing I'd say around um, being cautiously optimistic is the, the UCAS approach this year, which is in, actively encouraging students to self-release and look at trading up. And I think it, 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 we can be clear that there'll be winners and losers from, from that approach this year. I think also we shouldn't underestimate the scale of the task facing universities here as well, because I mean, there's and there's a really good piece on the site by Jim um, this morning, uh, kind of exploring what you know if, if you if you're going to offer some kind of face to face experience, what should that be, and and is it the right thing to focus purely on on learning and teaching actually? Because the thing that students may miss in September and that w- will be really really challenging for universities to deal with is that sense of community and particularly access to resources. So Jim's arguing that there might you know that there's a case for delivering high quality you know focusing your teaching online, delivering that at a very high quality rather than trying to split your attention between kind of the room and the internet um, and actually opening up things like computer labs, um, you know, st- you know, study space, you know, op- opportunities for students to kind of congregate in a socially distanced and kind of managed way. Um, and of course, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know it's, it's a classic gym. It's, it's, it's a very challenging piece, but I think there's, you know, as universities think about, continue to think about September, um, thinking about that, you know, what, what all, you know, if this, as and when the students do show up, you know, will they, uh, will they be able to get everything that they need from that experience? And then, and that, that is a genuinely challenging uh, proposition, I think, for universities. So I, I completely agree with, with, with the caution about, about numbers and that, that there's a, um, there's of course a risk that people change their mind late on. Um, but, but at, at the moment, I, I think people are really underestimating, uh, um, how much universities will be offering in person? Yeah, the experience will be different, and and of course our lives are different. We, you know, we're, we're having to adapt to socially distanced activities across 
you know, all parts of our life. And, and of course, universities have to do that as well. But don't underestimate how much time and effort is going into looking at how do you do socially distance teaching? How do you do socially distance student support, social activities? Universities will be offering a whole range of in-person activity far, far beyond uh, just some of the, the teaching. Uh, and so, yes, it'll be a different experience. But actually, if you compare it to the rest of people's lives and what people will be doing otherwise, at university, you're going to get about as fuller experience under social distancing measures as you will do in other, any other um, sort of part of life. So I don't, I don't think that you know people will, should look at universities and think, oh my goodness, just because it's not the same as last year, it's going to be much worse than any of the other options because actually everything is going to be socially distanced. And I think universities are actually quite a long way ahead in what they are able to to offer and deliver than than, than some other areas. And finally, the Secretary of State, Gavin Williamson, has been giving a major set-piece speech about tertiary education today. It's later in the day. Uh, Alistair and Jess have gone on uh, to get on with their day jobs. Uh, But I'm here with Debbie to review the speech and talk about its implications. Um, Before we do, let's hear a little bit. I don't accept this absurd mantra that if you're not part of a 50% of young people who go to university, that you've somehow come up short. You have become one of a forgotten 50% who choose another path. It exasperates me that there is still an inbuilt snobbishness about higher being somehow better than further, when really they're both just different paths to fulfilling and skilled employment especially when the evidence demonstrates that further education can open the doors to greater opportunity, better prospects and transform lives. We must never forget that the purpose of education is to give people the skills they need to get a good and meaningful job. So that was Gavin Williamson talking, Secretary of State for Education, of course. Debbie, what were your first impressions about this speech? Uh, Well, one of the interesting things about this speech is the uh, the spin of it. So, okay, so fundamentally, this is a speech about the necessity of investing and supporting the 50% of young people who currently do not go into higher education. This is something that we've been hearing about, I mean, certainly since the days of Ed Miliband um, and, 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 and before that, because obviously for you know a century or more, we've been wanting to invest and improve technical education. So that's, that's fundamentally what the speech is about. And that I think is a very credible policy agenda and something that you know we've, we've, we've been expecting. What the speech was billed as was about ending the 50% target of um, young people's participation in higher education. Of course, a target that was uh, formally met some years ago, but hasn't really been in existence for, for, for longer than that. So um, it's, there's, I think, a question about exactly what Gavin Williamson is trying to do here. So let's start with the uh, policy. I think it's probably the right policy uh, to invest in, in FE. I think it's widely understood that there is a lack of meaningful alternatives for people who don't want to go to university or who, for whom that's not the right choice right now at the kind of point of leaving school or college or, or don't want a full degree or, or, or whatever that is. And the role of colleges as placemakers in, in, in local areas is, um, I think, you know, as, as the Secretary of State said, is it's under-recognised um, and that's all really important. Um, in some ways, I think, we, what was expected was something kind of scarier for the university sector, some, some so perhaps more of a kind of uh, narrative about rebalancing, about you know some some of the things that we heard from Michelle Donnellan last week about low value degrees and um, and grade inflation, and the fact that that wasn't in there, I think, is 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 really positive. Um, and in some ways, what's helpful um, is, is although you know there's this focus on fifty on, on on the ending of the fifty percent target and the imp- implication that you know too many people are going to university, there's not actually a policy agenda in the speech that suggests 
that uh, people should be restricted from going to university if that's what they want to do. And certainly the emphasis on the higher technical, the level four and five provision, which of course universities deliver as well as colleges, um, is, 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 a, is, a, is, is an agenda that, that supports the progression of, of, of all kinds of people into university in potentially a positive way. I think it would be really problematic if the government said, oh, well, we need to actively restrict people going to university and making the choices that are right for them, because inevitably that would hit the most disadvantaged. We're not going to stop middle class people going to university because that aspiration is always um, is always going to be there, whereas um, obviously the path into university is going to be more complex if, if you come from a less advantaged background. So um, in some, uh, it is a what appears to be a kind of pretty solid policy agenda spun in a way that's incomprehensible to a lot of observers in universities, but probably makes a lot of sense to a handful of Tory backbenchers. Yeah, and and I mean a few things that were interesting for me as well because the um, it's it's as you said it it was spilled as something going to be there's going to be a lot more scary for universities than it actually was, but very much an extension of um, the government's agenda uh, now back three or four years at the very least. Um, you know, you you take a lot of what um, was said today looks very close to what Damien Hines, Gavin Williamson's predecessor, said in December 2018, looks very close to a lot of the things said around the org review, the the commission of it, and, and the kind of the, the immediate aftermath. Um, so, in some ways, almost feels like a kind of um, uh, kind of normalising. I, I guess from our point of view, inside higher education is is the importance of, of trying to contextualise this and understand and what Gavin Williamson means when he says he's looking out for the forgotten 50 cent. Now, I think really good that he doesn't then also say in the speech universities are terrible which michelle donlan found 16 orwellian ways of saying in, in her speech last week so that, that's really positive um but what is he actually trying to accomplish with this policy when it comes to or, or this agenda when it comes to higher education and it seems to me a kind of more subtle reading of it is uh is not uh, a shrinking of of higher education it's a possible expansion of um, level four and five qualifications at a, at, delivered at university. So kind of um, technical qualifications and those sorts of things. Um, it's possible that he sees a role for a big chunk of the sector um, in a lot of that, perhaps in collaboration with further education, but definitely kind of a, um, a role for HE. And, and let's not forget uh, the, the 50% so-called target um, includes level four and five. So um, I think what he's talking about is, um, or, or just really raising the question, uh, is full-time bachelor's residential undergraduate degree on the boarding school model, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is that the best value for money for taxpayers? And there's a genuinely legitimate debate about that and whether it's, it's the best value for taxpayers, um, the right thing for students, genuinely legitimate debate to be had about that without attacking universities. I guess what what's pleasing and almost surprising is uh, we got a little bit of that today uh, without the, the usual attack line. So um, I'd say that was pretty good news. Yeah, I mean, this this is this is of course our first take, and we're going to be digesting it a bit more um, on the site over the weekend, and 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 um, you know, look out for our Monday briefing uh, to, to 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 get uh, our full take. I mean, one one thing that did jump out at me and um, was the claim that uh, a uh, someone who's taken a higher technical apprenticeship after after five years earns more than the average graduate. Um, and I think I would really like to dig into the data behind that claim because I'm pretty sure that higher technical apprenticeships are not spread evenly across subject areas, for example. And I think that uh, there's a if you were to compare sector with sector, you might get a slightly different outcome um, if you were to run those numbers. So I think there's I think there's still some uh, questionable assumptions in there. And I think there's uh, so, some work that the uh, DK will be doing around looking at skills versus salary, because I think it's not, you know, it's, it's rarely as straightforward to say, oh, well, you know, if you 
you know, kid, if you do an apprenticeship or a higher technical qualification, you too could get the salary of your dreams. And, uh, you know, it, that, that is not, not true, but it's not always true either. And um, fundamentally, I think, yeah, young people should have plenty of choice and, and salary may be one aspect of that. But the ultimately, one of the things we know about higher education and, and, and degrees is that they prepare you for lifelong learning and they prepare you for all kinds of careers. You know, as, as Gavin Williamson puts it, the jobs that don't yet exist. So we do need to be really confident that what's being offered at level four and five uh, does that too and doesn't just prepare you for a job that's here right now but that may disappear in, in, in five years time so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show wherever you listen to your podcasts or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to jess alistair debbie and everyone at team wonky for making it happen behind the scenes and until next week stay wonky We'll